I noted in an email that I sent out on Friday that we are beginning this morning a new sermon series. Uh, Lord willing, for 13 weeks this summer, we're going to be looking at some of the most familiar stories of the Old Testament. Uh, These are the stories that we have been hearing since childhood, the stories that were read to us from our children's storybook Bibles, the stories that we heard countless times in Sunday school and during vacation Bible school. They are familiar to us, perhaps too familiar. We know these stories, but the question is, do we really know them? Do we really know what they tell us about God and about ourselves? Do we really understand their place in the story of God's redemptive work to save a people for himself? Do we recognize their importance in shaping a Christian worldview and informing the way that we live our lives? And this is what we are after this summer. We're going to push deeper into these stories than what the storybook Bibles ever gave us. And our task is to take an adult look at these stories, to move beyond simply a surface-level understanding. Now, we're going to find this morning, we could actually spend a, a great deal more time on each one of these stories than just one Sunday. And we're not going to be trying to cover everything. Rather, we're going to be focusing in on just a few things in each story. Now, we also want to acknowledge that Uh, there could have been a lot more than 13 stories. We had a very difficult time narrowing it down, but this is how many Sundays we have between now and the end of August. But it's my prayer that looking at these 13 stories will encourage each of us to go back and, and push deeper into many more stories that perhaps were a little too familiar to us. The stories that we knew well, but perhaps didn't really have a deep understanding of. So with that said, let's begin. And we begin where we should begin, at the beginning, in the creation story in Genesis, which sets for us a foundation of everything that will follow. Before we read our text from Genesis, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so too does your word go out from your mouth and shall not return to you empty. We pray, therefore, that your word would go forth in power this day and would accomplish that which you purpose for it to accomplish. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way with us and in us. Bring new life. Bring conviction of sin. Succeed in building up your church. Through Christ our Lord, we pray these things. Amen. We're going to be looking uh, this morning at the creation story from Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 25. Dearly beloved, hear the word of God. It is written. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. 
and there was no man to work the ground, and a mitts was coming up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made it to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of this second river is Agion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God calls a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We have at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter one, the account of creation, God creating all things by his word. A God who existed before the world began, the uncreated one, by his almighty power, spoke into the nothingness and the world and all that is in it came into being. God made the oceans, set their boundaries and filled them. He made the skies and filled them. He made the land with its mountains and valleys and plains and filled it. Stars and planets, plants and animals, birds and fish and everything that crawls on the earth. And God looked at his creation and said, it is good. We also know from Genesis 1 that God created man and woman in his image. 
And humans were given the mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to have dominion over the earth as God's representatives. They have the privilege and the responsibility of reflecting God's image in the world. So Genesis 1 reveals to us that humans are the crown of God's good creation. And then this account of creation ends in the first few verses of chapter 2 with God resting on this seventh day and establishing the Sabbath. But then we have this in verse 4 of chapter 2. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. It's indicating to us that we are about to see another account of creation, creation from a different perspective. And this is exactly what Moses shows us. It is a zoomed-in account, if you will. So as soon as one creation account wraps up, another begins revealing more about the creator God and more about those who have been created in his image. In Genesis 1, we see God as powerful and transcendent who speaks and creation comes into being. Now we are going to see God creating in a very personal way, especially as it relates to the pinnacle of his creation human beings. We move then from a general creation account to a particular creation account. And not only does this account of creation in chapter 2 focus in on the creation of man and woman, but it presents to us the relationships within which humans were created. The relationship with God, the relationship with nature, the relationship with one another, especially between the man and the woman. And it gives us a picture of these relationships, one that shows us that there is harmony and and unity that existed in creation as all creation lived in accordance with God's good design. Genesis 2 then is showing us creation as God intended for it to exist before creation was corrupted by sin. But this isn't just a picture of how things once were. It's also a picture of the order that God still intends for his creation. If creation is to flourish, then it must seek to live in accordance with the creator's good design. So we want to look at what Genesis 2 says about each of these relationships within which humans were created, with God, with nature, with one another, seeking to understand how we are to live in light of God's created order. So first, we see human relationship with God. In Genesis 2, God is revealed to be a God who is intricately involved in his creation. He's not simply a transcendent God who's removed from his creation. God is hands-on, if you will. There's great intentionality in his creating. There is meticulous design. And nowhere is this more obvious than in the creation of man. Verse 7 tells us that God formed 
the man. It's the same verb that would be used of a potter who fashions a piece of clay, carefully shaping it according to his master plan. God isn't sitting down at the potter's wheel, unsure of what will be spun out. No, there is intention. There is purpose. Everything in this text points to this truth. Man might have been created on day six of Genesis 1, but it is revealed here that he is by no means an afterthought in creation. Verse 7 goes on to tell us that after forming the man, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. While all creation has breath, that has breath, receives this life from God, it's only man who is said here to have his lungs filled by God breathing into his nostrils. A man is in one way a living creature, just like the other living creatures. He has a similar makeup. In another sense, though, man is very different. As one commentator puts it, breathe is warmly personal with the face-to-face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. There is correspondence between Adam and his maker that Genesis 2 is communicating. There is special relationship here between God and man. Genesis 1 told us that humans were created distinct from the rest of creation, being created in the image of God. Genesis 2 is revealing even more about this distinction. It's revealing to us the intimacy that the creator shares with this particular creature. Even so, we shouldn't miss that man was created from the dust. Here's a place where reading the scripture in the Hebrew makes a difference. Adam, the man, is made from the Adamah, the ground, the dust. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation. But before we get too prideful about that, Genesis informs us where we came from. John Calvin remarked, the body of Adam is formed of clay in destitute of sense to the end that no one should exalt beyond measure in his flesh. He must be excessively stupid who does not learn here humility. Calvin, by the way, is very correct. Scripture affirms that we are both wonderfully and fearfully made, but also that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. We are both created in God's image and weak and feeble creatures who came from the dust and to dust will return because of the penalty of sin. We are creatures dependent on God. And yet... God is intent to form special relationship with us and to provide for us in unique ways. God makes man and then places him in a garden where he has everything he needs. And it isn't just his physical needs that are provided for, although this was most certainly the case. There's a river there that watered the garden, which so that which was necessary to support and sustain life was there. 
There were trees that were good for food. But look what else is there. The trees weren't just good for food. They were also pleasing to the eye. They were beautiful. What God provides for man isn't simply utilitarian. It wasn't just created for usefulness. It's also created for man's delight. God creates beautiful things that they might be enjoyed, and he gives to man the capacity to enjoy them. Now, this tells us something of our creator, doesn't it? And God sees that it isn't good that man is alone. Man hadn't complained about being alone. He probably didn't realize what he was missing, but God identifies this need and creates for him a counterpart. We're going to come back to this momentarily. But we should note here that God provides for man relationally as well. Adam lived in harmony with the animals, but it wasn't enough. We also shouldn't miss that there are two trees in particular mentioned here in Genesis 2. And we're going to say more about these two trees next week, but we need to realize what the tree of life is really about. There in the middle of the garden, in the middle of man's world, was a tree that provided continual life. Man was free to eat of this tree. Its fruit was readily available to him, and without doubt, Adam did eat of this tree. But this tree was really pointing to the source of that life that came through its fruit. It was pointing to God. God made himself present there in the garden. The garden was where God provided access to himself, where he dwelt with man. It's where man could freely meet with his maker and the source of his life. We should be getting the picture that God isn't a stingy God. He provides abundantly. And don't miss this. Man was created to be in relationship with God. It's in God that man lives and moves and has his being. It's in his relationship with God that man discovers his purpose. And part of this purpose is directed Godward. It is to worship God and to serve him. But we serve him in how we relate to the world around us. So this leads us nicely into the relationship shared between human beings in nature, humans and the world around them. Even though man is formed from dust, God has assigned to humans a very special place in his creation. He has created human beings for a very special purpose. And this reality comes through loud and clear in Genesis 2 as we see that creation was in an untended condition before the creation of man. Look at verse 5. It tells us that there was a lack of of shrubs or plants. It also tells us that this was before there was a man to work the ground. And the point here is that these things were lacking because there was no man to cultivate the earth. Man is the missing element here. The rest of creation was created with man in mind to rule and subdue it. Remember, man is not an afterthought. So Genesis 2 begins to fill out for us what was told to us in Genesis 1 about man's responsibility in creation as God's representative. And if we're paying attention at all, then we find something very curious here. 
In verse 15, after God formed man from the dust and breathed life into him, after God created the garden and placed the man in it, we're told that the man was placed there in the garden to work it and keep it. Adam was to serve as God's representative in the garden, maintaining and promoting the order, the beauty, the productivity of the garden. If you want your plants to produce fruit, then they must be watered. And certainly Genesis 2 has already alluded to the human responsibility to channel the water that was available that it might be useful in cultivating crops. Plants need to be fertilized. They need to be pruned. Fruit needs to be harvested. More plants need to be planted, which means soil needs to be tilled and seeded. Adam is put in the garden to tend it and to guard it. Adam was given something fruitful, and he was to maintain it and make it even more fruitful. He was given something beautiful, and he was to maintain it and make it even more beautiful. He was given raw materials, seeds, fertile soil, water. He was to use them to produce something. This is part of what it means to have dominion over the earth. Uh, we're also going to see Adam exercising dominion in the naming of the animals in verses 19 and 20. But don't miss the obvious here. Did you notice? Adam is doing what? Working. Before the fall. Perhaps we imagined paradise as a place of complete leisure, where we are free to relax and do what we like with our time, lay on the beach, play golf, whatever. That isn't the picture that is painted in Genesis 2, is it? God creates man with a purposeful existence, which includes work. This is a God-given assignment as part of God's good design. It's not part of the cursed condition. Genesis 2 is making the point that work is not something that comes as a result of the fall. Now, how we experience work today is a result of the fall, right? We have to deal with the thorns and thistles, whether literal or metaphorical. We have to deal with the brokenness of the world, the, the frustration that things don't work as they're supposed to, the annoyance of people who are sinners, all the obstacles that a world marred by sin throws at us. But work itself is actually seen in Genesis 2, not as demeaning, but as a mark of human dignity. It's the means by which we exercise dominion over creation as those created in God's image to rule as his representatives on earth. Unfortunately, the idea of work has fallen into disrepute among many in our current cultural context. Work is often associated with being a demeaning necessity. It's something that we have to do to make a living. Work is something that constrains us but must be tolerated to get what we were really created for, right? Retirement. <laughs> a life free of work. And there's been this growing anti-work sentiment in our country as ideologies like Marxism have taken root. 
Uh, people see work as oppressive, especially if they feel like they're only making someone else wealthy by their labor. This anti-work sentiment isn't limited to non-believers, though. It has even been shared among Christians who simply view work as a result of the fall. The message from Genesis 2, however, is that work is a means by which we interact with the world around us and by which we serve and glorify God. Now, we could say a lot more about work, but we want to simply acknowledge the place of work in serving God and therefore its place in Christian discipleship. In a culture in which work is seen in a very negative light, Christians must be intentional about our understanding that of work in terms of vocation, of Christian calling. We need to understand that work isn't just about making a living. It's about loving our neighbors. We need to understand that work is essential in honoring God and enabling people to thrive. It's about caring for the world around us. It's about creating and maintaining structure. It's about promoting order and beauty of God's good creation. It's about producing that which is necessary for the prospering of culture. Work is a part of our purpose in the world. Now, let's just stop for a moment. I hope that we're already seeing the importance of the foundation that Genesis 2 sets for us. We're at a point in history, in, in a cultural context, in which this foundation has crumbled. The result is not only that work is denigrated. Worse than that, humans are understood to be nothing more than animals. In fact, many view the human race as the worst type of animal. One that's an invasive species that is doing nothing more than destroying the environment around it. And brothers and sisters, we don't want to deny that humans have at times misused their dominion over creation for evil, but we also don't want to deny how humanity has flourished, how the world has been cultivated by God's common grace through human innovation. As believers who profess faith in Jesus Christ, understanding what Genesis 2 tells us of the special position of humans within creation and the special relationships humans were created to share with God is extremely important. There are many, many other implications that can be drawn from these truths. One of the most important implications is concerning the sanctity of human life. When one understands that all humans are created in God's image for relationship with God, then human life is seen as precious. It is no small thing to devalue the life of one who is created in God's image, to be lived for God's glory. We could spend a lot of time this morning discussing the importance of not only protecting human life, but also promoting it, seeing to it that human life is truly cherished. So in light of Genesis 2, I hope you will give some thought to these things today and in the days ahead. Brothers and sisters, if we who have been delivered from the darkness and brought into the marvelous light of God don't live with clarity on these things, who will? Now, Last, but certainly not least, we find in Genesis 2 the relationship shared between humans, especially man and woman. This issue, too, has tremendous implications for our current 
cultural context. We live in a time and place in which there is tremendous confusion concerning the relationship between men and women. All around us are those pretending as though there are no differences between men and women, pretending as though one can create his or her own gender identity. The importance of family has been diminished and even destroyed. We've been brought to this moment by ideologies like the radical feminist movement of the 1960s and 70s. Feminism gave birth not only to a sexual revolution that has encouraged promiscuity, which has consequently resulted in over 63 million abortions in the United States since Roe v. Wade. And this is what sin does. In trying to be free from God, in trying to escape from God's good design, millions of baby girls were never given the opportunity to live, but were slaughtered in the name of liberating women. But it has also landed us where we are today, with rampant sexual confusion with this total denial of biological sex and an insistence that gender is a cultural creation, with the destruction of the family because women must get out of this oppressive system of being wives and mothers. I don't think I need to inform any of you of our current reality. The situation really is dire. We live in a country in which there is so much confusion and self-deception And it's not only accepted, it's celebrated. In fact, we as a nation have set this entire month apart to celebrate this confusion. And make no mistake, what is being celebrated is the thought that life can be lived apart from God in his good design. And those who are pushing this ideology are coming for our children. They're coming for them in the schools, in the libraries, They're coming for them through the media. They're coming for them through marketing. They are coming for them by way of legislation, creating laws that allow our children without parental consent to receive hormone therapies and have surgeries which permanently alter and mutilate their sexual organs. Think about that. Our children need our permission to go on a field trip with the school, but not to undergo life-altering medical treatment. This is the insanity in which we live. And those who are pushing this ideology are insistent that any of us who are opposed to this insanity are violent fringe activists. Those are not my words. They are the words of those who recently reacted to Target making less visible in its stores transgender swimwear aimed at children and removing LGBTQ clothing designed by a self-described Satanist. That's what they said. If you are opposed to these things, you are a violent activist. They want to control the narrative that we are the ones who are evil and oppressive. So let me say it again. Genesis 2 provides clarity about the order of God's creation and asserts that if we are to truly live and prosper, then we must live on God's terms. In accordance with his created order, it is extraordinarily important that we as Christians living in this nation are not confused about what Genesis 1 and 2 say about these things. We need to be clear about gender. Namely, there are only two, male and female. And it isn't of our choosing which we are. It has been assigned by God. 
And there are differences created by God between male and female. And this is not only good, it is very good. I I wish I had a long, long time to spend on this particular portion. So come to our Wednesday evening program this summer. We're going to be getting into it in greater detail. But let me just say a few things. Genesis 2 presents us with the reality that God has created male and female as corresponding parts. I've already noted that it it was God's idea to create the woman. He was the one who identified Adam's aloneness as not good. Consider that. From chapter 1, we heard the refrain that what God created was good. Six times it was repeated, and God saw that it was good. But for the first time in Genesis, in verse 18 of chapter 2, this is before the fall, we read the words, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. This is very strong language. It should shock us. And as one commentator puts it, it indicates not only the absence of something good, but a substantial deficiency. We need to see here that God intended for humans to live in relationship and community with one another. We see here God's plan for marriage. That's what's happening when God creates Eve and presents her to Adam. He is the first father presenting his daughter for marriage to a man. And from this marriage, we see God's plan for humans to fulfill the creation mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Man and woman are to become one flesh which is pretty explicitly indicating that the man and woman are to physically come together in sexual union as those who have been created with corresponding parts. This is, by the way, why marriage biblically can only be defined as between a man and a woman. It isn't just about companionship. No other scenario has a possibility of producing offspring. There is no other scenario that provides a healthy environment for children to be raised and nurtured. We are seeing here that marriage and family, according to God's good design, is God's plan for human flourishing, the building block for human society. It's after God created man and woman in his image that scripture then declares, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Within this relationship, it's clear that Adam is the federal head. He is the one created to be the representative of the two. He's the one who is given by God a role of leadership. He was created first. It was Adam that, from Adam that Eve is created. It is Adam who names Eve. That is an act of headship. And this will further be shown later in Scripture. It is Adam who is responsible for the first sin, even though it was Eve who was tempted and deceived by the serpent and took the first bite of the forbidden fruit. It was under Adam that all creation was plunged into sin because he is the federal head. I do want to clarify what that means and doesn't mean, though. It means that there are gender roles. Scripture assigns leadership roles to men, not because women aren't capable, not because they aren't plenty qualified with intelligence and ability, but because God has called men to take the lead. It's the created order. They are to be the head of their families, and likewise, they are to take leadership among God's family, the church. Now, before anyone gets upset with me, 
Let me say that it doesn't mean that women are somehow inferior to men in terms of worth or dignity or access to God. The woman is created to be a helper, but that doesn't mean that she is meant to be subservient to the man. That isn't what helper implies. It's actually the same word that's used to describe God in other places in scripture. God is the helper of Israel. But look at what Adam declares. Eve is the bone of his bone, the flesh of his flesh. God created for Adam a perfect corresponding counterpart, one who is truly fit for him, completely equal to him in worth and dignity, every bit the image of God as he is. In fact, it is together that they represent God's image. And we see in Genesis 1 that it is together that they are to exercise dominion. Eve was, in a very real sense, given to Adam to be loved and cherished by him as the best part of himself. And he acknowledges that in the name that he gives for her. She is woman because she has come from him. She is a part of him. So we're meant to see male and female as corresponding sexes who are designed in a way to complete one another, to be interdependent. Now, we shouldn't read the text and say that somehow those who aren't married aren't complete. That is not the point here at all. The reality is not everyone is called to marriage. Scripture asserts that just as some are called to marriage, other are called to singleness. That is a holy calling. This text isn't prescriptive in saying that a woman's worth is found in marriage and childbearing. That's not what it's saying. Nor is it the point that a woman's only place is within the home. That's not what the text is saying. There, is, there isn't anything wrong with a woman working in the home. But look at Proverbs 31, the exemplary wife. She is described as one who is in the home, but also in the field and in the marketplace. So anyone who asserts that this text says that there's only one place for a woman, and that is at home having babies. They have not taken the rest of Scripture seriously. But even while there is sameness between man and woman, there are differences. There are biological differences. It's a biological fact that men typically have more physical strength than women. There are probably women out there that can beat me up, but by and large, men have more physical strength. Women are able to do things men aren't able to do, like giving birth. Regardless of what the world says, only women can have babies. But there are different tasks as well. Notice man was created outside of the garden, and he's placed in the garden to cultivate and protect it. It says something of his purpose. It helps all in the garden, including woman, to flourish. Eve was created within the garden perhaps suggesting a special relation to the inner world of the garden. Genesis is revealing patterns. Again, this isn't prescriptive. It is patterns. Man is fitted with biological strength to keep the garden, to till it, to work it. Woman has within her, she possesses within her the capacity to cultivate new life. She is specially fitted to fill the earth and to tend to the communal aspects of the garden. This is how together man and woman share dominion over creation with interdependence. There's a lot more we could say here. The point is that there is sameness and there is difference. 
and it's good. God said it was very good. But the world is profoundly out of step and confused over the patterns of creation. Dearly beloved, it is therefore so important that we understand these things. But more than that, it's important for us to demonstrate, not only in our beliefs, but more so in our actions, the goodness of God's design. It's important that we demonstrate in our living that we understand that humans were created for relationship with God. It's important that we demonstrate in our living that we understand our responsibility in creation as those who have dominion to tend and protect the garden. It's important that we demonstrate in our living that we understand the importance of human relationship with one another, especially the value of marriage and family. And dearly beloved, may God help us do this faithfully until Christ comes again, sin is removed, and Eden is fully restored. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the witness of your word. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who creates with intentionality, with purpose. A God who creates with great love for us. And Lord, help us to understand our purpose. Lord, help us to understand how we are to relate to you, how we are to relate to the world around us, how we are to relate to each other. And Lord, may we as your church do this with all faithfulness to your holy word. May we trust your good design. May we look to you as a source of our life. And may we give thanks for Jesus Christ who came and suffered and died that the fallen world might be set aright. Lord, by your spirit, help us to participate in your redemptive work, restoring your creation. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. In response to the word of God, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe.